imagine what it looks like when you stand out at night and, and stare at the stars like the ancient Greeks did and you see all of these um, marvelous stars and planets. And then years later, you get the Hubble telescope and suddenly now you realize that there was a lot you didn't see before. And that's what's happened in this field. The technology has gotten so much more refined that we're able to see things we didn't know existed. And there's just no doubt that um, mosaicism exists because well, for no other reason than biology isn't perfect. Now, the question, of course, is the, the debatable question is what does it mean and what does it predict and what do we do about this newfound knowledge, which is what happens in all of science. We discover something we didn't know and then we have to figure out what to do with it. But I think we absolutely know for sure that mosaicism is a real thing. It's not an artifact of a technology. Yeah. I, you know, if you look, Look at the literature. Um, mosaicism in embryos has really been documented since the early nineties, uh, where you know labs like uh, Darren Griffin, Darren Griffin's group, um, Santi Monet and uh, Verlinsky did fish analysis on whole embryos and saw that you know some cells, that different cells had sometimes different uh, chromosomal count for uh, for individual chromosomes uh, and that was visual evidence that mosaicism exists in in embryos um, they did initially was mostly done i think at, uh, at the cleavage stage and then they also did it in a blastocyst stage whether it exists or not is is i think beyond question now um, there's also you know a lot of evidence that's come out in the last 30 years since those initial observations from Rebiopsy experiments of embryos of blastocysts, where several biopsies are taken from different regions and they're not hundred percent concordant, um, and and that's with different technologies, uh, next-gen sequencing, array CGH. So over and over again, you know, mosaicism had already been documented, uh, chromosomal mosaicism in several contexts in in, in human physiology and, and and animals as well, but. Really, those initial fish experiments, uh, you know, are visual proof that mosaicism does exist in, in human embryos. So it really should come as no surprise then to us that with PGTA, occasionally we see mosaicism because we take a multicellular biopsy at this day and age. Initially, a single, bio, a single cell was taken and there obviously you couldn't see mosaicism. But nowadays the field has moved to multicellular biopsy at the blastocyst stage for good reason and there should come as no surprise that occasionally we do see mosaicism we do capture that mix of cells and like mark said now the question is how to manage those embryos that show those results uh, in the clinic but whether it exists or not i think is beyond any any doubt you know you know tony uh, uh, alan handyside an early pioneer of course in this field often called the father of the field he, uh, he, he's fond of saying that we've been transferring mosaic embryos since Louise Brown. We just didn't know about it. And, uh, and, and I think that's true. And I don't know why we should be surprised because, um, first of all, as, 
not to repeat what Manuel just said, but let's just go back further. Let's go back 35 years to when Corian Villa sampling was first done in pregnancies. And it was heralded uh, by many and frowned upon by others um, as a way of getting data much earlier than amniocentesis uh, in a pregnancy. And you would find mosaicism in a reasonable percentage of CBS samples. Um, and so where did they come from? Well, there's no reason to believe they didn't come from the, all the way back to the embryo. So I think it's pretty clear that this is uh, not some new discovery that it exists. It's uh, more an issue of how, how common is it? Is it caused by anything that we do or increased by anything that we do in IVF? That's a possibility, I suppose. Um, or is it just a normal course of biology and that we're all low-level mosaics, we just don't know? <laughs> so I think it's really interesting to talk just about why we're in the situation we are now. Why has mosaicism become an issue now? You know, if we've been there, as Manuel says, for the last 25 years, you know, we've had fish we've had a cgh we've had um all sorts of different bits and pieces and we've worked out that mosaicism um is present why is it an issue now is it an issue because of the combination of trophectoderm biopsy and ngs is that our problem because we've never had the sensitivity before in the testing to do this you know why why are we in the situation where it's become such an issue over the last four or five years? Well, I, you know, I think, um, again, initially PGTA or PGS, uh, as it was called back then, people would take a single cell or, or sometimes two, but mostly a single cell. And there it's impossible to see mosaicism. You have to at least take two. Um, nowadays, people take uh, a multicellular biopsy, which is anywhere between four and ten cells. And there, occasionally, you will catch mosaicism. You will catch that uh, phenomenon in, in the multicellular biopsy. Um, you know, and as we've progressed, as PGTA has progressed in technologies from, you know, fish initially to all, the, you know, through qPCR, SNP array, uh, uh, array CGH, eventually to next-gen sequencing. Now we are, like Mark was saying, now we have a Hubble telescope. We can see better. It's more refined. The resolution is higher. The dynamic range is better. So we see those things. We see the intermediate copy number um, when, when it's present. Before, we couldn't or we did so very poorly. So suddenly now, um, you know, we're faced with this issue that was there all along. Just we couldn't really detect it. We didn't see it. So it kind of went undetected. Things were much simpler, obviously. The results of PGTA were binary, normal, abnormal. Um, but in hindsight, that was kind of just avoiding the problem. Um, we, and, and must have caused some serious, uh, you know, negative clinical consequences. If you, if you think about it now that we can detect mosaicism, you know, we should, we should manage it. We should manage those embryos in a specific way, according to their mosaic, uh, uh diagnosis. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, when you look at almost all the publications where people within single clinic groups have 
transferred from RACGH to NGS, they've improved their results. You know, the publications are there. Um, but we're still kind of going down a wormhole with mosaicism of, you know, discussing the minutiae. And I think one of the problems that we have is that depending on different technologies, you find different levels of mosaicism because they might have different resolutions or sensitivity or specificity. And I think that's quite hard for the general clinician, IVF doctor and patients to understand. Um, but it's always been the case. But it's, you know, it's, a, it's quite a hard concept to understand that we can't give absolute answers. So that, that is the other part of this, isn't it? I mean, surely we wouldn't know about it if we didn't have the resolution um, that Emmanuel was just talking about. But there's also the expectations of what the data are going to tell us. And um, the, the field started with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for a single, single Mendelian disorder in which you were looking for a change a single nucleotide polymorphism or mutation that was leading to this genetic uh, malady. And so it was a binary answer and people expected a yes, no answer as we moved into an area of looking at chromosomes, which isn't a problem necessarily that occurred um, uh, in the gamete. It occurred after fertilization when mosaicism begins because you have normal cells and abnormal ones, whereas single gene disorders are inherited and every cell in the embryo has this change. So the expectation was we're going to have a binary yes-no answer that this embryo is genetically normal or not with regards to chromosomes. One of the reasons that the field used to use the terms PGD for genetic diagnosis and PGS for genetic screening is because chromosome analysis in many ways has always been thought of, even in amniocentesis, as a screening process. You are screening the sample to see if you see anything abnormal in it. You're not screening every cell of the whole embryo, because if you did, you wouldn't have an embryo to transfer. So the mosaicism that we're seeing in the screening process is in the biopsy, but what percentage of it is in the whole embryo is another matter. And so I think the resolution led us to ask the questions and then the expectation gave us, as you say, Tony, this quagmire about, well, what are we doing about all of this? And is this kind of testing even useful? Well, of course it is. In, bio, in medicine, I'm a physician. I talk to, I, I interact with, uh, with cancer doctors, for example, and they go in and they biopsy a tumor or a mass. And they send that sample off to the pathology lab. And sometimes they get a response, well, this is carcinoma in situ. Well, this has a mixture of some aberrant cells, but it doesn't look to be neoplastic. But if they biopsy the other side of that mass, which they didn't do, they might see full-blown neoplastic cells. So we are a biopsy is simply a sampling 
and we're getting a screening result on that biopsy. Unlike PGTM, where we're getting a solid binary yes-no answer, is the mutation there or is it not? So I think it's both of these things that have led to the quagmire, Tony. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, uh, you know, it's quite obvious that in PGTM, the the value of the biopsy as a representative, a genetic representative for the remainder of the embryo is, is excellent. And and not only of the remaining of the blastocyst at that stage, but of the pregnancy later on, of the fetus and, 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 and so on. In PGTA, when we look at chromosomal abnormalities, uh, that's a little more shaky. The, the value as a representative of the biopsy um, of, of the remaining uh, embryo is not so great um, when we talk about mosaicism. Um, you know, in a world where in a world where only meiotic errors existed, um, then we could look at PGTA as a binary thing. But the reality is that mitotic errors, mitotic chromosomal segregation errors do exist, leading to mosaicism. So we simply, it's a world of a binary answer from PGTA becomes obsolete. We do have to take into account the reality, the biology of it. And it does make it messier, does make it more complicated, but it's the reality of it. Mitotic errors do happen. And so we have to account for it when we look at PGTA and when, when we look at the results. I've got to say, uh, I, I completely agree with you. And it brings some interesting questions. One thing that I will mention, and Manuel and I were talking about this just beforehand, is in, even with PGTM, where you think you've got away from mosaicism, you don't get away from mosaicism all the time. Because the way that we do PGTM, we look at the inheritance patterns by following the haplotypes, by following the, the alleles. Um, you expect, if you have... Uh, this test set up correctly to get the inheritance and the mutation follows the haplotype. That's the way the tests work. And some people don't, but we test the mutations all the time whenever we can, because then you, you always should have what's known as linkage between the haplotype and the mutation. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And sometimes you find that the haplotype doesn't follow with the mutation and that's because of gonadal mosaicism and that's mosaicism at the you know at the at the molecular level not the chromosome level so it's present all the time and with that i'd like to thank mark and manuel thank everybody who's tuned into this episode of fertility insights please share comment and make sure you tune into our next episode